podcast one production. In the first half of 2019, I realized I needed to save more, put money aside for a rainy day. For that day, years and years and years from now, when I might want to take things a bit slower, all that stuff. And let's be clear, I've been making money. I'm not a spendthrift, but I wasn't clear where all of it was going. So I decided to try a bit of an experiment by tracking every cent I spent on everything. And not for a day or a week or even a month, but for an entire quarter of the year. So in March, April and May, I had my smartphone with Google Sheets open on it all of the time. And every time I spent anything, even to buy a coffee at my cafe, it went onto the list. Did it suck? A bit to start, but I got into it because I could see where the money was going and when and how and why, and I learned. The first thing I learned is that it's actually good to pay close attention to these sorts of things. Just by paying attention means you consider things, you think differently about things. Actually, you just think about them. They're not automatic, which can't be a bad thing. But the more I did it, the more I realized that the larger my sample size the more accurate the sense of my spending. Because some bills, they only come due once a quarter or even once a year. It all evens out if you look long enough. So I kept it up. And I did all of this before I'd gone cashless, before my new banking app gave me a nice running display of everything I'd spent. So it was a lot of effort. Worth it, but a lot of work. And I wondered, if this could help me so much, well, could I be the only one Maybe everyone else could get a better sense of their spending. Maybe everyone could save more with a bit of support. That effort that I made into the detailed study of my spending, that led to this one. Banking used to be boring. All of those years of being stale, flat, and profitable, they're giving way to a new kind of banking, one that's still evolving, still incomplete, still in beta. Welcome to the age of the beta bank. Good day, I'm Mark Pesci from The Next Billion Seconds. And together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, we're exploring this new world of neobanks. That's a fancy word meaning new banks. And learn how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds. And in this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at open banking. Let's welcome back co-host Andrew Davis to the show. G'day, Mark. What a fantastic story. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting because I did spend a lot of time and energy documenting all of my transactions over that quarter, all of my spending. There has to be an easier way, right? Well, yes, Mark, there is, fortunately. And the landscape is moving quite quickly now. It all started a few years ago with the advent of PFM apps. PFM stands for Personal Financial Management. And these apps made use of your banking data, typically through a concept known as screen scraping, which I'll come back to, to be able to categorize your transactions into different expense and income buckets to give you an idea of your financial position. And in Australia, one of the original PFM apps was called Pocketbook, and they still exist today with their tagline being, life's good when you're on top of your money. Probably not unlike how you felt, Mark, during those three months. But there's been a flaw with how these apps have worked in Australia. Having to screen scrape your banking data, which basically means you, as the owner of a bank account, having to share your banking login details with the PFM app 
so that it could access your account online and scrape the transaction data. While some people were happy to do this, many others, as well as a few of the banks, were not supportive of this approach. And in fact, some of the banks actually kind of changed their websites so that you couldn't scrape them easily, right? Yes, in fact, uh, there's this constant to-ing and fro-ing between the banks and the PFM apps, one trying to outdo the other in terms of fulfilling whatever each objectives were. So, So the bank's trying to make it harder to read and then the PFM app will change so that it can try to read it even though it's harder to read and so it's a bit of a cat and mouse. Exactly. But also... Ultimately, of course, uh, you know, the um, account owners who were sharing their logon credentials were really breaching their banking terms and conditions. But often, though, I think the banks decided that they couldn't uh, overly enforce that. And in the end, they became perhaps quite silent on the matter. But these PFM apps showed that there are benefits from allowing a third party to access your bank account data to better help assess your financial situation and possibly make recommendations for different banking services and products. Okay, now here's the thing though. There is always some sense of risk when I am handing my banking credentials over to a company that might be a little app, which is a couple of people that I've never even heard of. And this, of course, is what the banks were sort of using as a wedge, right? They were saying, well, Mark, you're, you're, A, you're violating your terms, but B, you're actually exposing yourself. Well, that's right. And if uh, there happened to be a transaction that uh, happened on your account that you didn't undertake, potentially the bank could hold you liable for that. Mm, So, okay, so the bank really, it wasn't just sort of that they were making it hard. They were legitimately sort of exploiting both fear and safety around making these apps as hard to use as possible. Yes, that's right. Although to my knowledge, uh, for Australia at least, there's been no documented example of a PFM app going uh, rogue (laughs) as such and uh, doing something like that. But, you know, from this learning and with some lobbying from the fintech sector, as well as seeing how other markets such as the UK have addressed the opportunity, the Australian government agreed to legislate the requirement for all banks to allow their consumer customers to have access to their banking data. Ah, okay. So now this begins with something that's known as the consumer data right, doesn't it? That's correct, Mark. The consumer data right was an initiative of Prime Minister Scott Morrison when he was Australia's treasurer. And in fact, at that time, he was largely seen as the mentor uh, of the fintech sector. So that legislation is designed to give consumers control over their data, who gets it, who gets to use it, and for what, and who they share it with. It basically flips the relationship around. Banks and telcos and other businesses have been gathering data on us for years, and we've had no say on it. The consumer data right gives us a say. All right, so when we're talking about this data, the the telco, in fact, sort of knows all of our calls. And actually, if you have a broadband and you all, all have a mobile broadband subscription, so it actually knows where all of your data has gone as well in detail. It's keeping some of that for the government, for the metadata registry, but it could easily be sharing that data with you so that you kind of could have a map of where your data is going and how it's living. And then the same thing is happening with the banks. You have all of this transaction data, all the things you tap with, all of that. So these organizations actually have a huge wealth of data. When it comes to banking, what specifically is the kind of data that I'm generating? And where does that data live right now? Well, retail banking, as we learned in episode two, is all about the kinds of payments you make as you live your life. So that's your mortgage payment, car payment, utility bills, school fees, groceries, and that sort of thing. Right now, the bank is sitting on all of that transaction data. They know who you paid, when and how much. And that stream, it's a transaction stream, is a core part 
of what we'll all be getting access to as part of the consumer data right. To fulfil the consumer data right, banks have to offer a way into their systems so we can get that data securely, safely, privately and on demand. That's the core of what open banking is, satisfying the new consumer data rights with capabilities offered by the banks. So that sounds simple enough? Well, yes and no. Many of the systems, particularly with the big four banks, are old and your transaction data may reside in a variety of systems within the one bank. So it's not very easy to change them to be able to provide this transaction stream to customers. We saw this happen in the UK, which is a few years ahead of Australia in open banking. Their big banks all begged for more time to implement transaction streams because their systems required a lot of reworking. What we're saying then is in some senses that the incumbent banks have such big systems with so much engineering and and people have left or joined the company and maybe it's poorly documented, that to open these systems up that are collecting the transaction data so that they can provide that transaction data to us is actually much more complicated than we're making it sound here. Definitely. And it's not just a matter of having the different systems, but the data sets may be structured differently. Like think of the transaction data relating to a credit card could look very different to a transaction data relating to a check account. All right, because there's more data, in fact, about the merchant and all of the other things that go along with it that's not recorded when you write a check, which has really just got the bearer on it. That's right. So the legislation here in Australia says that the big four banks have to start providing access to consumer account and transaction data for credit and debit cards, deposit accounts and transaction accounts no later than February 2020. So what do you reckon? Is is that going to happen? Well, this timing was delayed once already and I wouldn't be surprised if they asked for more time. Okay, so let's say that the banks do the hard yards and they implement open banking and I've got it, I've got this fancy transaction stream. What is the benefit to me as a consumer, as someone who has a retail banking account? So this is where it gets really interesting. The banks have always used this transaction data for themselves. They've never really given a thought of how the data can be used to help the retail customers. But now that's all going to change. And not unlike the pocketbook personal financial management tool example that I mentioned earlier, clever startups will build tools that will take your transaction stream, analyze it, and give you recommendations for new ways to save, spend, and invest. So it means that we'll all have someone in our corner working as a partner with us financially. And if enough startups do that, chances are the banks will get the hint and start to offer similar sorts of services. Well, it's funny because when I was actually working on writing the script for this episode, I saw something from Ubank. And Ubank, of course, is not quite a neobank, but it's sort of one of the mobile-ish banks that we have in Australia. And they've just partnered with a startup to do an AI tool to, again, take your transaction stream and analyze it and start to make recommendations on it. So are we actually already starting to see this? And does that mean we're going to start to see an explosion in the kinds of tools and financial services that people are being offered? Uh, Definitely, Mark. And in fact, uh, a great example that's been around for a few years now is this concept of robo-investing, where apps already exist that give you advice on what investments to make could be in the share market, could be in other traded securities. And so there's another example of where technology is ultimately being used to deliver better services to the consumer. So that explosion, Mark, that you talked about definitely seems likely. And in fact, that was really the broad intent of putting in place the legislation 
Different retail customers have different needs. Someone saving for a home has different needs than someone preparing for retirement. So there's likely to be a lot of different products aimed at people wherever they are in their lives, helping them to live their best life financially. That all sounds quite promising, but we still haven't really seen anything from Open Banking, Andrew, other than a lot of promises. So how long do you reckon it will be until most of the folks using retail banking start to see the benefits of open banking here in Australia? Actually, that's the billion dollar question. We need to see a number of factors come together for this to be successful. And perhaps the hardest one of those will be to predict consumer behavior. Now, yes, of course, there'll always be a segment of the population that are early adopters. That's me. (laughs) Indeed it is. And they're the ones who download all the apps and apply for all the services. But just how long will it take for this to become mainstream, such that, say, 20% of the population are active participants in an open banking model? Is that three years away, five years, 10 years? Maybe it'll never be realised. The added point, though, to consider is that the Australian government intends for the open banking model, where consumers get access to their data, to be applied to other sectors, such as telcos, utilities, health, and so on. Okay, so the consumer data right is banking and telecommunications data, utility data, so that's your electricity and all of that. Your health data, now is this is, I guess, health insurance data, or is it actually data from my doctor as well? It could be all of that. I mean, it, you know, ultimately data represents value. So this so is huge. I mean, this is, is not just, I mean, banking is sort of the opening, it's the thin end of the wedge, but this is actually really huge. It is. And so the good thing is that over time, the likelihood of the average person becoming familiar with open banking data model and wanting to access the benefits that come from it hopefully will increase. Okay, so now we know where we are. The consumer data right means that, at least at first, we get open banking. What happens after that? Okay, yeah, too early to tell. But in a moment, we'll talk to a neobanker at the forefront of open banking to learn what's in it for them and for their customers. This is Mark Pesci with co-host Andrew Davis, and in this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at open banking. We've taken a look at how legislation to provide a consumer data right means that the banks in Australia will need to start to provide a depth stream of transaction data around where you're spending your money, how, where it's going, all of this that they can then be fed into third-party apps, maybe help make recommendations, maybe help you save and spend and invest better. Andrew, we sort of have the landscape. What's next? Well, Mark, perhaps we have a sense of what it means for customers, but what does it really mean for the banks? How are they going to react to this? That's a very good question, Andrew. And to answer that, we've invited Rob Bell, CEO of 86400, onto BetaBank. 86400 was one of the first new banks to get a full license from APRA. That's the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Those are the folks who keep their eye on the banks. Now, 86400 opened its doors to beta testers in August of 2019. I was one of those beta testers. It opened its doors to the Australian public in September. And back in November, 86400 announced that they'd been selected one of the participants in the trial of open banking, which is overseen by the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, or the ACCC. Rob, welcome to Beta Bank. Thank you. Great to be here. 
Tell us a little bit about 86400, just as we get started. 86400 is a brand new bank. Uh, It's a bank that's built from the ground up digitally to work on a smartphone. We describe it as a smart bank. And we use technology in lots of different ways to help Australians take control of their money. 86400 is very much a retail bank. What does neobanking mean for 86400 in relation to its retail banking customers? How is it different? How is it new? When we designed 86400, we looked closely at what was happening overseas and obviously saw open banking and the equivalents PSD2 in Europe. And we designed from the very start to be able to consume open banking data because we felt that this was a fundamental shift and change uh, in happening across the world in the marketplace. The way we think about data is very different to the way a traditional or big bank thinks about data. We think about data as it should generate some value for our customers. If we're going to collect data, if we're going to keep data, it should generate value for our customers. The way a big bank has always thought about data is, how do we use that data to try and sell people more product? And so it's a fundamental shift. So right from the start, we designed 86400 to be able to consume open banking. And we're very excited about the possibility of doing that uh, soon. So Rob, what interested you then in joining the open banking trial? Why did you decide to be a part of that? Well, we applied for it for two reasons. Uh, One is because we're a big believer in open banking. We want to learn as much as possible uh, and test what we've already built uh, as quickly as possible. And that's that's an important role. The second role is equally important, is that we want to be inside the tent, agitating and pushing to make sure things don't slow down. Because our experience with programs like the new payments platform, for example, is they always take significantly longer for the big four banks to, to do, to organise, to get their technology lined up. And we suspect that left just to the big four banks alone, uh, open banking would happen at some time, but perhaps in a very, very, very long time in the future. Um, So it's learning for us, but it's also being able to influence the outcome, which creates better outcomes for Australians. And we do see so many examples of technologies being given the slow walk. So Apple Pay is one of them. Open banking could well be another one. The NPP, the new payments platform. Again, all of these technologies that are enticing because of the services that they can offer both banks and consumers, but that the larger banks have been very slow in adopting. Are we starting to see now the birth of a two-speed banking system where you start to see the big four because... They have these big old-fashioned systems that are big, unable to adapt to innovation as fast as the new banks can? Well, I think certainly you'll see that, that the really big banks have all the, the capital, all the money required to put to these projects and make them happen if they had the desire. But they also have the challenge of prioritising and they also have the challenge of, you know, obviously very old legacy systems and you know, even where they keep their data is in multiple different places and, and not necessarily connected up. So it's a challenge in terms of willingness and desire to do it, prioritisation. Uh, if they put their minds to it, of course they can do it. But what you're actually asking big banks to do is to provide data which will increase competition. And obviously the big four banks have never been a, a let us say, um, you know, competition is not something they're keen to see uh, when you have 80% of the market share. Well, so it's interesting you bring up competition because the first thing that we can see around open banking is it means that there will be a range of apps and services that will take my data, 
Andrea's data, consume it, and then use it to provide better tools for me to be able to manage my income, Andrea to manage his income or his retirement. Are you looking to be able to foster those kinds of relationships? Will you be active about that or will you wait for those businesses and startups to come to you and say, hey, we have a great idea? We'll be very active in, in using open data. And in fact, we're actually already doing things that are open data like in 86400. So one of the things that open banking will allow more people to do, for example, is to aggregate uh, accounts and, and show people all their banking relationships in one place. That's something that 86400 is already doing today using a different technology. And the reason why we're doing that today and not waiting one year or two years or longer to do that is because we want to get this benefit to consumers straight away. And we want to learn so that we're ahead of the curve. So those type of things are really valuable. You know, being able to let people see all their accounts in one place alongside their 86400 accounts is a, is a great service. Then what we're doing, and we're already doing some of these things, is we're putting layers on top of that. So we have very smart algorithms running at the moment, looking at consumers' data, looking at all their transactions across all their banks, and we're able to help them predict when and what amount their upcoming bills are coming. So there's two examples of what you'll be able to do with open banking, but we're actually doing them already now so that we learn and we and we get ready. And obviously when we get open banking fully operational, all the banks on board, uh, and then you start to get things like utilities on board, it really gives you more power to leapfrog from there. So we want to be ahead of that curve. So Rob, one of the great things that I see about open banking is that in many ways it's going to force banks to really be on their toes about constantly thinking about the customer and the benefits that they can provide. Because if a bank perhaps is not so forward thinking, the risk is they'll become not a net beneficiary of services, but perhaps a net loser of customers. So ultimately, you know, how does a bank make money in the context of open banking? I think it's important to think about just the sort of two roles for open banking. Um, all banks eventually will have to be providers of data. They'll have to make they have to be compliant. And that really is just a compliance project. It could take a long time for some banks for that compliance project, but they will have to get there. Whether they all decide to consume data is yet to be seen. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of people who, who will want to consume data and they'll have different ideas on how they actually use that data. I would argue unless they can come up with ideas that actually genuinely benefits customers, it won't be any different to what we've seen with the use of data in the past, which is trying to sell products. So I think lots of people will, including the large banks, will, will think about use cases. For us, we really work on the basis, if we can add value to customers, then they will do more business with us. And so from a commercial point of view, if we can give them more insights, if we can genuinely help them take control of their money, then they'll bank more with us and they'll tell our friends, their friends and their family about us. And so the big thing for us is about advocacy and satisfaction. And if we can add more value to them, those things improve. Thank you, Robert. It has been a pleasure to have you on Beta Bank. My pleasure. So Andrew, listening to Rob, he is legitimately excited about the power of open banking. And it was very clear that he was trumpeting the fact that as a neobank, he was able to build the 86400 system so that they were intrinsically able to do the open banking kinds of work. And that this is clearly going to be a stumbling block for the big four banks, which were designed in an earlier era when these things just simply weren't anticipated. But 
he pointed to something that was so obvious that I hadn't even thought of it until he said it. And I used the 86400 app, which is that it actually wants to show you all of your transactions from all of your banks in one place. And that was something that really wasn't very interesting to me a year ago because I only had one bank account and now I have six. And actually now it is kind of really interesting for me to be able to go, wait, can I see all of this in one place? And so this is yet another avenue which makes open banking really interesting, right? Which is that not just are you seeing the transaction stream, but it allows you to get an overview in a way that you hadn't before. Indeed. And in fact, the trend internationally is that more and more consumers are consuming products from multiple financial institutions. Gone are the days where you opened your bank account at the time of leaving school and that's the bank you had for the rest of your life. Uh, we you know, receive so many offers now and there's so many kind of great services that come our way and friends and family that refer us to all these uh, you know, new apps and capabilities. It's not uncommon over a period of time to start to gather accounts and services from multiple institutions. But of course, that means fragmentation in some ways. How do I understand all the money that I have in different locations, perhaps loans with different parties and so on? So these aggregator opportunities are a great outcome. One of the distinct benefits of open banking is that now uh, a single bank can kind of be my go-to where I can see all of that data, irrespective of which institution it's, it belongs to. I mean, there's two sizes. One is that there's there's an app to rule them all, right? Where I'm getting that one view. But from where the banks are concerned, they were able to, I guess, keep you fenced in. And they're losing, that fence is basically being washed away by open banking then. Yes. And in fact, I guess now it's, uh, as we said earlier, the, the relationship's being flipped. And the risk is now the banks are being fenced in because I may just have a bank who I only use for a very niche offering. And I have no interest to ever expand beyond that. But I know that they offer that particular service very well and I use that service from them. I mean, in some ways, this is how I've been playing the neobanking game is I've been looking at the interest rates on all of these accounts and I've been putting my money into the one that this month or this week is offering me the best interest because it's easy enough with the neobanks to move the money around. And if they're all sitting in a single app, it might be, in fact, like the robo-investing, that the app is doing the moving behind the scenes for me. It just knows that I want to get the best interest rate. And it knows that I don't really care which of my bank accounts it's sitting in. That's right. And in fact, uh, you know, the hardest thing has always been about going from bank to bank and opening up accounts. But in this day and age, we can open accounts online and the number's ready, available straight away. So now, uh, you know, you can have accounts in multiple banks and you can play one off against the other based on how rates move week to week, month to month. Okay, Andrew, we have got the data. Maybe we're getting some power as consumers, as banking customers. That is great for all of us in Australia. What about the rest of the world? What is going on there? So, Mark, if you think banking is changing fast in Australia, just wait until we hear what's happening in the rest of the world. We've got a really exciting presenter lined up, and that's the topic of our fifth and final episode of Beta Bank. If you want to learn more about open banking, cruise on over to our website at betabank.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's betabank.show. To listen to any of my other podcasts, Cryptonomics, The Next Billion Cars, The Next Billion Seconds, just open your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P-E-S-C-E, Pesci. Big thanks to Rob Bell from 86400 for coming on to our show. 
Beta Bank was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Andrew Davis. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolic. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, search Mark Pesci Beta Bank. Go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Thank you for listening.